welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, still broadcasting from home, hopefully for not that much longer. Thank you for joining us in your own time of semi-confinement. So while enduring this era of restrictions, let's look way beyond to a place of no restrictions at all. Let's look far above and beyond our current world, literally to outer space. In this episode, we're going to discuss why the conquest of space has become popular again. It's a race, and we'll look at the players and the changes that may result from a new era of exploration, changes in science, security, geopolitics, and our own current understanding of the universe. And we'll be joined by George Whiteside, CEO of Virgin Galactic, a company founded by the famous Sir Richard Branson as a space tourism endeavor. And he will chat with us on the heels of the company's announcement of a new joint program to train NASA astronauts for travel to the International Space Station. George has a very long career in the space field and understands better than anyone the challenges and opportunities ahead. As always on Altamar, we would like to take a step back for some context. Muni, let's talk a little bit about the origins of space exploration and some of the key dates and events in the relatively short but colorful history of space exploration. While space exploration is recent, it's a science that results that rests on the shoulders of Plato, Copernicus, Da Vinci, and Galileo, and so many others who have spent, you know, long nights looking up at the sky and wondering what the hell is out there. That's very existential, Peter. But after World War II, technology and electronics made some of the answers to these age-old existential questions more tangible. Rockets and satellites were shipped, devices and even animals outside of Earth's orbit, fueling ambition, curiosity, and later a very famous space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Spaceflight and exploration migrated from the books of fiction to theoretical science to applied scientific journals. And governments enthusiastically dove into exploration as a means to gain military might and public accolades. Space then became a show of strength, a societal advancement as politicians and affluent countries invested in missions, equipment, and research programs that later led to sophisticated surveillance, high-powered telescopes, and satellite launching to space. Cosmonauts or astronauts. In 1957, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev kicked off the space race with the U.S., which for over 30 years became a competitive Cold War playing field to show the power and might of capitalism versus the power and might of communism. If you've ever seen the Oscar-nominated movie Hidden Figures, it provides an excellent portrait of the U.S.-USSR competition for space at the time. Yuri Gagarin, the Soviet cosmonaut, gave the Soviets their first win with his orbital flight, providing the Soviet Union with a propaganda victory and putting pressure on the United States that it could do the same. I don't remember this, but I know that it was a huge blow to U.S. morale and tensions elevated even further when John F. Kennedy decided to actively engage in this race, ramping up the space program, promising to send a man to the moon. And Kennedy's vision led to investments in satellites and electronic equipment for intelligence observations, strategic communications, gathering and surveillance as well. And space, Peter, transformed from illusion to a potential weapon in an escalating battle between the two superpowers. And while the Soviets got off to a quick start, the eventual Apollo moon landing in 1969 marked the victory of the U.S. and capitalism and the Western world. The Cold War undoubtedly fueled budgets and resources for space exploration. And when it ended, programs simply fizzled. Other countries in Europe and Latin America developed space programs while the U.S. retreated to the point that its astronauts were forced to piggyback on the Russians in the International Space Center, an alliance that it's unlikely, but it's worked. 
And the takeaways from all of these decades, space was a proxy war for the U.S. and Russia, uncovering strategic advantages in national security through satellites, telescopes, and manned flights. And as the competition waned, so did government enthusiasm and even public enthusiasm for space. But scientific gains in weather prediction, disaster control, observation, counterinsurgency, and even verifications of arms control and nuclear agreements have reignited the space fire. And there's new dimensions in communication. Global satellite positionings were discovered. Space tourism stopped being a dream. And private companies have taken note. So what happened more recently to get business so excited about space, which had been for so long mainly government territory? That's the key question. The short answer is the possibility of lucrative private activities through new partnerships and space models. Facing budget crunches, NASA and other space companies in countries like India have changed their regulations to open the door to private companies to funnel in finance and money and thus creating channels for new funding and a whole new range of possibilities. SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, has made headlines recently by partnering with NASA to launch the Crew Dragon manned spacecraft. And in the middle of our confinement, we all stopped a little bit and looked at that. Boeing and Lockheed Martin have been researching devices and technology while making plans to engage with the government as well. And others like Japan, India, and the Emirates have expanded their own programs. And now more and more companies are jumping in to an open or opener (laughs) of playing field. And Virgin Galactic, created by Richard Branson, just announced a very interesting new partnership as well. But we will let our guest for today, the company's CEO, tell us about this and other space topics on his own. George Whitesides is the CEO of Virgin Galactic, created in 2004 to develop commercial space vehicles. It's now dedicated to exploring space tourism and science. Previously, George served as chief of staff at NASA after working on Obama's transition team for the agency. He was the executive director of the National Space Society and the creator of Yuri's Night, an international celebration to commemorate milestones in space exploration. He's advised and served at Virgin Galactic, the FAA Space Transportation Division, CompStack, the Space Generation Foundation, and the Zero Gravity Corporation, among others. George is a graduate of Princeton University and King's College. George, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Great to be with you. So for our listeners, we can actually see George. And Mooney was commenting that he's our first guest in months who's not transmitting from a living room, but rather he's transmitting from an enormous hangar in the Mojave Desert in California. And behind him are a couple of spaceships. So we're excited to have you, George. I want to start with your recently announced partnership with NASA to train astronauts for trips to the International Space Vehicle. Congratulations on that. And tell us a little bit more about what that program is all about. Sure. Um, so nice to be with you both today and um, nice to be talking about space, a uh, positive subject in a time when there's a lot, a lot of lots of positive stuff going on. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Virgin Galactic is a company that is dedicated to opening space for the rest of us. Right. So for, uh, you know, many decades, space has been the province of professional astronauts, many of whom are my closest friends. They're amazing people. They're supermen and superwomen. Um but uh, we, we realized, you know, 15 years ago, or really this was Richard Branson's realization, was that there wasn't a lot of effort being put into opening space up for other people, um, you know, non-professionals. And um, so there was something called the XPRIZE, um, which was this uh, great competition to sort of catalyze innovation in space. 
And um, uh, it, it produced a, a prototype vehicle called Spaceship One. And, um, and uh, so as part of that um, competition, Richard Branson said, um, we will uh, you know, try to commercialize this, um, this technology. And, and that's basically what we've been doing for the past 15 years. And so we've created a, a space system called Spaceship Two, not very creative, um, uh, creatively named, but anyway, created a spaceship called Spaceship Two uh, that was uh, sort of a commercial version of Spaceship One, and that's what we're going to put into um, uh, commercial service um, relatively soon. And so um, the announcement, um, so so that's really what we're all about is is we're creating a space system that can take many more people into space than has been the case in the past. You know, in the past, uh, over the past, you know, since 1961, when when we first, when humans first went into space, uh, a Russian guy named Yuri Gagarin, um, since that time, only about, call it 500 to 600 people have ever been into space, which is a crazily small number, right? I mean, that's less than, that's like 10 people a year for, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, what we have the opportunity to do is to do that number of people in a single year and, and maybe more over time, you know. And, and so what we aspire to do is to bring sort of airline-like operations to space and to, um, you know, radically break open access to space so that many more people have access to the space environment. And the wonder and the joy and the discovery and the self-realization and, and, uh, and all the great benefits that come from access to the space environment. So that's what we're doing. And then recently, last week, we had uh, a couple of great announcements with NASA. One of them was that uh, NASA is going to start thinking about putting uh, NASA astronauts on board our vehicle and NASA researchers, which is a really great thing. And we can talk more about why that's a good thing. And then another thing we announced was that uh, we're going to start looking at um, the possibility of training people to go to the International Space Station, so private space travelers and researchers to the International Space Station. What combines all this is the desire to expand space access to everyone, you know, so that it's not just the province of professional astronauts, it becomes the province of you and I and the benefits of space accrue to everyone. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but I thought that was a good sort of introduction to the company and, and to give your listeners a chance to uh, understand the bigger picture. I appreciate that, but if you ever think 15, 20 years back, I remember as a kid that I was all excited about the Apollo launches and the landing on the moon, but it, it faded away. And if somebody said to me 15 years back, you know, space travel is going to be all the rage again, I would have laughed. What What's happened to change that? Why is it so in and cool these days? Well, I think... Um you know, the public imagination is captured by space, and I think it always has been, but certainly, you know, like, it reached a peak in Apollo, right? I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, arguably, Apollo was maybe the pinnacle of the 20th century in some respects, other than, you know, like, the victory over the Nazis in World War II or whatever, but, um, you know, uh, so it's a high bar, right, you know, when you compare against Apollo. Um, but I do think that there's a tremendous amount of excitement around space today, and and I think it's because of this really productive partnership that's going on between NASA and the private sector. Um, and, uh, and in particular, the connection between NASA and these dynamic entrepreneurs who are putting their own money into building, you know, innovative new space systems and doing new things in space, you know, and, and the pace of innovation has gotten uh, faster. 
Um, you know, there's a whole raft of new vehicles coming on to uh, coming into service, and um, and in particular, um, people are going up again. And what we I've always seen in the space industry is that um, when people go up into space, the public pays attention. And so, you know, we flew uh, five people in 2018 and 2019 to space, got them their commercial astronaut badges. Obviously, SpaceX just sent a couple of professional NASA astronauts up to the International Space Station. And so there's going to be this wave of human spaceflight innovation uh, coming up, and that's something that really captures the attention of the uh, American public and the international public. It used to be that space was the domain of wealthy governments in just a few countries, and they it was really hard to find countries that could afford it because it was seen as some sort of a public good. And now recently, as you've mentioned, there are uh, many companies putting their hats into the race. There's obviously a Virgin, but Tesla, as you noticed, Lockheed Martin, Boeing. It seems that there's a lot of private interest in the exploration of space. Is there a, a common reason for that? Is there a business model behind that? Well, historically, you know, NASA has worked with, you know, a, a group of contractors, you know, and you listed some of them there, and they all are great firms, and they're doing great stuff, Boeing's and the Lockheed's and Northrop's and others. And, um, and then there are these sort of newer players that have come onto the scene over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's a bunch of different trends going on, and we can sort of go through them. But I mean, some of them are uh, NASA's desire to, you know, catalyze innovation and competition, honestly, inside the, the space sector, which is driving more innovation. I think that there's also some new technologies coming on to uh, the, 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 the sector, in particular, reusability. You know, we used to be basically the dominant model of space launches. We would launch something up and we'd throw it away. And, you know, as I like to say, you know, travel to Europe would be pretty expensive if every time you got in a 747, you threw away the 747 on the other side in London. And so reusability is a really uh, key thing. And, um, and, uh, and, and I think just there's, there's other things beyond human spaceflight, like the advent of these small satellites. You know, it used to be that, you know, to create a satellite, you need to send up this thing that was like literally the size of a bus, you know, or, you know, or, or at least a large car. And now you can have things that are the size of toasters or, you know, like your cell phone and that have tremendous amounts of capability that are utilizing, you know, many of the advances in miniaturization that um, were developed through the, the cell phone technology. And so there's all these great technical trends that are driving innovation. And, um, and, uh, and, and that, I think, is playing out in, in commercial interest. Yeah. About 15 years ago, when you found the company Virgin Galactic kind of put the idea of space into everybody's heads, I made an informal poll before this broadcast among the people around me about who wanted to go to space as passengers. And there was a unanimous yes. I think I was the biggest kind of holdout. How soon is passenger travel to space going to be available? Because I need to give them an answer. Uh, I, I think it's coming quite soon, to be honest. Um, I mean, we've already sent people up into space. SpaceX has already sent people up into space. And there are certainly other uh, companies that are getting close as well. And so, you know, that's all really exciting. And um, so, you know, I think um, uh, it's, it's um, you know, on the order of months and it's not years, I think. So that's, that's really the, the main headline. Let me ask you again, because Mooney's questions about the business model, I get it that lots of things have changed about space travel. I, I love your model of throwing out the 
747 when it arrives in London. That's a that's a cool metaphor. But is this a profitable business? I mean, how much can you grow this business? How much does it seem to me like you can take 600 passengers a year? But are we talking about taking thousands in five years' time? I, I hope so. You know, I, I think that um, our system is is very has very many elements of, of like air, airplane likeness, uh, if you will. It's not an airplane, obviously. It's a rocket plane, if you will. But um, but it's got a lot of elements of airplane like uh, technology. And and uh, you know, in theory, I think we can turn around the vehicle quite quickly. And um, I think that's that's what it's all about is being able to use the same vehicle multiple times. And, uh, you know, really being able to um, uh, turn that around a lot so that we, a lot of people can fly. And, and that's what's exciting, right? Like we're at a point where instead of, you know, 10 people going up a year or whatever, we could have 100 or 500 or 1,000 or 5,000, you know. And I, I, I like to say that, you know, we're going through this weird, interesting and inspiring transitional moment where, um, you know, in the past, very few people will have known an astronaut, you know, will have known somebody who's gone to space. Whereas uh, going forward, uh, I think most people will know somebody who's been in space. And, and that's an interesting transitional uh, moment. No, no, no. I completely agree with you. Going back a little bit to this idea of the business plan, I understand that companies derive revenue from different sources. If you would have to sort of order and prioritize those sources, do you see tourism or science or geopolitics, the military or weather monitoring, resource extraction? Or, or is it all about just plain poetry? Well, I mean, I think certainly with our customers, the primary interest is in um, uh, just going into space and experiencing space, right? Like they want to just go up there and they want to have that transformational experience and they want to see what it's like. And um, that is the that is the thing that, that people want, you know, and, and different people want different aspects of that. Some people are looking at the weightlessness. Some people are looking at, you know, looking down at planet Earth. Some people want to look out into the universe. Um, there are all kinds of different, uh, you know, things. But I think the headline is that um, people want to, you know, just have that that experience. And there's this wonderful thing that you may have heard of called the overview effect, um, which is this uh, thing that is an academic sort of uh, thing. And it's it's uh, basically a, uh, a way for um, people to describe the impact that the space experience has on, on people who go up to space. And, and it's not that complicated. It's really this idea that uh, people have, um, uh, you know, a, a shift in their worldview when they go into space, that they have this uh, change in how they perceive themselves and uh, their, their fellow citizens of planet Earth. And, um, and it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a great uh, it's a great thing, and so that's the main thing that we want to share with our with our fellow customers. Should we expect some sort of a regulatory framework to accompany space? I'm thinking of of how when the internet kind of bloomed into people's lives, there was no regulatory framework, and they had to kind of hustle to to build it. Is that uh, similar when we have to find how government and the private sector approaches travel from the legal standpoint? Yeah, the legal aspect of it is really interesting. Um, so, you know, uh, we're regulated under like a new part of the FAA uh, regulations. And, um, uh, and and the FAA has been, you know, uh, very forward leaning in terms of how it uh, how it uh, gets, you know, um, or puts us under under regulation. But we have a good relationship with them. 
And, uh, you know, I think um, uh, what the FAA knows is, is uh, what I think government knows is, you know, this is, this is not getting on an airplane um, in terms of like a certified aircraft that, you know, you fly on American Airlines or whatever. It's, um, it's, it's still a, a rocket ship and there are risks associated with that. Um, but we're going to be required to sort of talk through those risks to people who fly with us and, um, you know, you know, like explain to them, you know, those risks and, and some of them, you know, are, are, we can mitigate and obviously some, some are, uh, almost intrinsic to the, to the, uh, the challenge of human spaceflight. But, um, overall, we think that we have created a system, the basic architecture of our system, we think has really enormous safety factors within it. Uh, for all kinds of reasons that I could, I could go into, but basically we, we think it's a really safe system. And I personally can't wait to fly on it myself. That would be wonderful. We all spoke about and mentioned earlier in this podcast and some remember the space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and how that became kind of a, a symbol of communism versus capitalism. It, all this recent activity in the private sector, is that leading to a new, different, very different type of space war or space competition among private companies? And if so, who do you think are the winners and losers? And as much as you can share that with us. Well, luckily, I don't think that the competition between uh, between companies has gotten to the point of space war. Um, you know, I think we have a, you know, a, you know, a strong competition between different players, but but overall, it's um, you know, it's it's still um, respectful. I, I do think that um, unfortunately, there has been a lot of sort of negative activity in space on the governmental side, and 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 uh, you know, different national entities are looking at how they can, you know, do really serious negative stuff um, in in orbit. You know, and and that's really unfortunate because I think. You know, ideally, uh, we retain space as a as a place for people for peaceful purposes of humankind. Um, but there is uh, no doubt a lot of uh, nefarious shenanigans going on in in orbit today between the great powers, and that is something that um, you know that's I think that's part of the reason that's driving the creation of the space force and other and other kinds of you know governmental responses to that that stuff. I can't help but ask you that when you say nefarious shenanigans, can you? Give us some examples. Well, a lot of it is classified, and I'm not even read into all the programs. But I think it's 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 not um, news to know. It, I mean, it's public to know that there's certainly um, a lot of uh, development of vehicles that can visit other um, other satellites. And um, you know, the reality is that a lot of these satellites are uh, quite vulnerable um, from the perspective of uh, you know other satellites coming up and doing things to them. And so, um, you know, how do you protect, you know, these assets that are worth billions of dollars in space, you know, it's like you have this amazing, you know, resource or, or ship, you know, in space, but there's, there are no guards around it, there's nothing protecting it. And so if something scoots up to it, and wants to take a picture of it, or, you know, hit it with a laser or whatever, then um, there's, there's not too much that can be done. So there, there is, a, you know, there is, for better or for worse, a lot of innovation going on in that area, mostly in the classified side. What about countries that are doing exciting things in space? We, of course, know about the Soviet Union, the U.S., and maybe some European countries. I've heard recently a lot about India's space program. How does that play into the puzzle? Yeah, I know the head of the Mexican Space Agency. He's a great guy. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think one of the exciting things is just as there's been this sort of renaissance in commercial innovation, there's also been a, a broadening 
of the number of countries that are doing incredible activities in space. And like you say, India is one of them. And but really, there's a lot of countries. I mean, the United Arab Emirates is doing uh, has an amazing space program right now. And so um, I think that's very inspiring to me. One of the things that got me into space in the first place is that I view space as like potentially the best of humanity. You know, you've got discovery and courage and international cooperation, but you also have some competition, which makes us better and um, all kinds of things and 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 wonder and all the all these things. And so I think um, the fact that all different countries and thus all different kinds of peoples across the world, the fact that they can be involved in space, whether that's by creating a satellite or flying to space on board our vehicle, or maybe someday going to the International Space Station. Um, those are all really inspiring things. And, and I think that, you know, what we've seen is that nations can retain friendly relations in space, even when they're having pretty challenged relationships on the ground. And I think it's good uh, that, that humanity has these programs that they can work together on even through uh, challenging times. Yes, I know we've spoken about all the possibilities. So talk to us a little bit about the challenges. I can't imagine this is easy, whether in Virgin's case for tourism or for commercialization in general, this huge effort to commercialize flights to space. I imagine it's just a raft of scientific, economic, difficult, difficult financial challenges. Talk to us a little bit about those. Well, you know, if it was easy, then people would have done it sometime over the last 60 years plus, right? Um, the fact is that all of these things are very difficult. Um, making vehicles go very fast in a reusable way, um, propelling them to orbital velocity or suborbital velocity, doing it in a reusable way or doing it, you know, in a, in a very, very highly safe way. All of these things are enormous technical challenges that, you know, every company has taken a long time uh, to do. You know, this is, this is the kind of thing that takes not just months or even years, it takes decades sometimes to, to do these programs. And so marshalling the resources to maintain efforts over the course of, you know, a decade or more is really challenging. And um, it requires either, you know, strong, uh, you know, um, strong, uh, uh, you know, billionaire backers or, or, or resources like that, or government resources or others. And so, um, you know, so th so I, I think the number one challenge is sometimes, you know, just making sure that the capital is available to to pursue these projects. Then obviously there's the technical side and safety is our North Star. We don't have a business if we don't operate safely. Um, and then we're sort of going into new areas all the time. Regulatorily, uh, we're, we're doing new things, you know, and we're, we're uh, in, you know, insurance or whatever, all different levels of things. We're, we're always doing new things and we pursue them. Um, you know, with honesty and with, uh, you know, good faith. I like to say to new employees in the company, uh, you know, we're going to ask you to do things that no one's ever done before. And you have to sort of be comfortable with that or else this is probably not the right job for you. But, you know, just because they haven't been done before doesn't mean they can't be done. It just means that you need to put your head on and, you know, and, and get your brain engaged and, and figure out how, how to do it. And, and that's the way humanity has always proceeded. And so, you know, all this stuff is Totally doable, um, but it just takes time, and, and to do it safely is, is really the is really the crucial thing. Great interview, and you're very good at this. So I'm going to just end with a totally personal question, which is, you know, all this fast travel to space, we've given up on fast travel on Earth. I had the unique chance to be on the Concorde twice, which I guess shows my age, but is this ever coming back? Are we ever going to be able to go to Paris for dinner? Gosh, I hope so. Um, you know, I think uh, th I think the biggest technical challenge is actually not doing it fast, 
but doing it sustainably. And um, so the technologies exist to do it fast today. And, you know, they have existed for a long time. Um, the biggest challenge will be pursuing these kinds of new vehicles uh, in, in a way that is respectful to the environment and emit a lot of, uh, you know, greenhouse gases, or at least comes up with a system where, where they're, um, they're netted out. So that's, that's actually something that we're working a lot on right now is to think about how to do that in a sustainable way. Uh, it's something that we think is really exciting. We're flying people on a Mach 3 uh, winged vehicle today, um, and, uh, but we're just going straight up. And so the idea is, well, what if you were going across? And we need a different vehicle for that, but um, it may be an evolution of uh, the vehicle that we have now. And, and I think that that would be you know, exciting. It would bring the world together. And I, I sort of tend to think, just like I was saying, you know, our kids you know, are going to know a lot of astronauts. I think our kids are going to think it's crazy that it took us 18 hours to fly to the Middle East or whatever. You know, I think they're just going to get on something and go in a couple hours or whatever. So, um, you know, the, there's still a lot of possibility in our planet. We can use technology to create things and do things. And that's a great uh, that's a great opportunity that we all have. And and, uh, and we feel lucky to be able to pursue it here at Galactic. George Whitesides, thanks so much for joining us on Altamar. At least I had a blast. So, Peter, that was great and refreshing and wonderful, especially these days when we're thinking of COVID and looking inside and staying inside. It was actually great to kind of think, at least with our imaginations, about outer space. And I I hope our listeners feel the same way. But I'm struck with a very practical question is what's the business model here? Like, who's making money? And I know it's great that these very big companies are expanding and investing in technology and partnering with NASA and all that. But what's in it? It's an extremely expensive industry. And I don't really see where the benefits are. Who pays for space travel? Are they going to find enough passengers? And what is, maybe I'm just thinking about this too simplistically, but what is what is in it for companies right now? And I don't know if you have any ideas about this. Mooney, you're killing the poetry. This was so much fun. I mean, not thinking about COVID or problems or, or uh, authoritarianism, but thinking about the possibilities of space travel. You know, I certainly would sign up to be a passenger. I don't know. There's one guy I'd pay something for that. I, I imagine this is going to cost millions of dollars. So I can't imagine that I ever will. But, you know, I, look, my preoccupation is elsewhere. My preoccupation is with the concern that he brought up, which he called nefarious shenanigans. You have the capacity to bring machines and people up to space. That means you're going to bring the ability to manipulate, to threaten, to uh, invade parts of space which have somebody else's property in it. And I, I just, it just seems to me that it is we're while we're in a time of poetry, we're also going to enter a time in which space is going to be another platform, another area for big shot competition. And obviously, eventually, the potential for conflict is still there and the shadow of the space wars are still present. So hopefully they can, all this exploration can be used for the common good and hopefully towards science and sustainability, not the opposite nefarious forces. And with that, we say goodbye today. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. See you next time.